Thank you for joining me uh, for this Bible study. This is a post-recorded message. We had some technical problems this last weekend um, with our computer, and so um, this is being recorded in our church offices. Uh, Obviously, this recording will not have our congregational participation as we typically do in our weekend services, and it'll be somewhat of a of a Reader's Digest version of this teaching series. I felt that this, the content of this message was, was too important to not to be a part of this overall teaching series. We're teaching, uh, the, the title of this series is Spirit-Filled. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21 is what we've been looking at over the last few weeks. And this weekend's message is method, the method of the Spirit-Filled life. Being Spirit-filled is the most amazing life you could ever hope or dream to live this side of heaven. I'm convinced of that. And in this series, we are looking at the magnitude, the means, the method, and the marks of the Spirit-filled life. The magnitude is that Christians, both individually and corporately, are God's temple and God's Spirit dwells in us. That's, that is amazing. It's an amazing truth that the Bible tells us. That's the magnitude. The means of this Spirit-filled life is that through spiritual disciplines, if I seek the giver rather than his gifts, I'll be filled with his presence, and his love will prove to be better than life. In other words, the more I am filled with the presence of God, the more I begin to taste and experience His love. His love is no doubt about it better than anything that we can face in life. But oftentimes we don't live in the reality of His love, and so so how do we make that more of of a reality? Well, that takes us to this weekend's message, the method. The method is taking that from concept to reality deep within our hearts. And, and that's where we are, and that's what we're going to look at here in this Bible study. And, and keep in mind, I, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, it's not you getting more of Him, the Holy Spirit, but it's Him getting more of you, learning to surrender every part of your life to Him. And so before we look at our text, let me begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive into our text, and then we'll begin to unpack it. Would you pray with me? Father God, you have lavished your love upon us by calling us your children and placing your Holy Spirit within those who put their faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. In this study today, open our blind eyes, our deaf ears to the reality that you are for us and not against us, that you are for us and not against us. May the reality of that, that truth, dispel all darkness, all despondency, and all despair in our lives. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Let me begin by reading the text here. Our text we've been looking at over the last uh, two weeks, this is our third week, this is a four-week teaching series has been Ephesians five eighteen through 21. So I begin reading verse 18, chapter 5 of Ephesians. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. 
And, and so that, that's a commandment. And then he goes on to kind of unpack this of what it looks like if we are filled with the Spirit. Verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. What is the method of the Spirit-filled life? Here's the first uh, thought, number one point of our notes. The Spirit-filled life is having truth shine in your heart. It is, the Spirit-filled life is having truth shine in your heart. It's where the truths of God go from concept to reality. Um. When we kicked off this teaching series, I, I read from John chapter 14. It's part of the upper room discourses with Jesus and his disciples. It's just hours before he's going to be hanging on the cross for them, for us. And so he's giving them some last-minute instructions. And uh, they're a little bit anxious about the fact that he's going to be departing. And they're not really sure why. And there's a lot of confusion and so he tells them in John fourteen sixteen through 18, I am not going to leave you as orphans. In fact, I will send to you another, some translations say comforter or counselor, or even uh, the ESV says helper. And so he's saying, I will send you another. The word another is not another of a different kind, but it literally means in the Greek, another of the same kind. In other words, just as Jesus was with his disciples, the Holy Spirit will be with us. And that's an amazing idea. That's an amazing truth of God's Word. I mean, I've often thought about what it would be like to be with Jesus. And and yet he's saying, I'm going to leave you, and yet I'm going to send you, just just as I was with you, the Holy Spirit will be with you. He also goes on and instructs him in, in John 16, 13 through 15, the work of the Holy Spirit. And we know that the Holy Spirit's working in our life because the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. And the word glorify or glory means weight, significance, and importance. In other words, Jesus becomes big to us. He becomes bigger than our, than our trials. He becomes bigger and more delightful than our temptations, he becomes more. Uh, he becomes bigger than even the trauma that we experience in life, and uh, he becomes bigger than all of that. And so we know the Holy Spirit's working in our life when there's this sense of the glory and the majesty and the bigness of God that creates within us a sense of wow, and not only just a sense of wow of his of his greatness, but a sense of, mmm, over his goodness. Another one of the cross-references that if you're following along with our, with our sermon notes is Romans 8.16. Let me read that verse to you, really talking about having truth shine in your heart as a result of this spirit-filled life, the truths of God going from concept to reality. Romans 8.16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, that we are children of God. Now take a look at that verse just for a minute. The Spirit, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit Himself bears witness. He begins to move upon our spirit, stirs within us this truth shining in our heart that we are children. We are children of God. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was a medical doctor before he became a pastor and a teacher. He writes a little bit of a commentary that I think it helps us to understand this, this more clearly. And I think it really brings this out to help us to understand this verse. Uh, he uses this illustration, this story. He says, a man and his little child are walking down the road, and they are walking hand in hand, and the child knows that he is the child of his father, and he knows that his father loves him, and he rejoices in that, and he is happy in it. There's no uncertainty, uncertainty about it all, but suddenly the father, moved by some impulse, takes hold of the child and picks him up, holds him in his arms, kisses him, embraces him, showers his love upon him, and then he puts him down again, and they go on walking together. Martin Lloyd-Jones goes on and says, that, that is it. The child knew before that his father loved him, and he knew that he was his child, but oh, oh, the loving embrace, this extra outpouring of love, this this unusual manifestation of it, that is the kind of thing when it's saying that the Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. When Jesus baptizes a person, and so he's, he's referring to this Spirit-filled experience as being baptized by Jesus with the Holy Spirit. When Jesus baptizes a person with the Holy Spirit, Lloyd-Jones says the person is carried not only from doubt to belief, but to certainty, to awareness of the presence and the glory of God. So what is, what is the method to the Spirit-filled life? Number one, the Spirit-filled life is having truth shine in your heart. The truths of God go from concept to reality. Here's point number two. We tend to live in and out of this experience. I'm sure that you would agree with me that I don't always live in the reality that, that I'm a child of God. Because if I did, it would make a major difference in my life and how I respond to the, to the trials and the temptations and the, and the trauma that we receive in life. And so we don't always live in the reality that we, it, we live in and out of that experience. And so the goal is to live in the reality of this as much as possible uh, making it a whole life experience. That's your fill in the blank there on your notes, to making it a whole life experience. The problem is, is that we have three enemies. Now, what are those three enemies uh, that are really working against us and, and really keeping us uh, from experiencing um, the reality of God's work in our life, that He is for us and not against us, that He loves us, that He is crazy in love with us. Can you think of maybe those three enemies? In fact, these are things that you really need to be aware of. It's working against you in your life. Well, Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 27, we studied this a few weeks back in our Vertigo teaching series, The War Within. Paul makes it very clear in those verses, Romans seven fourteen through 24, that he said, the things that I want to do, I, I don't do. The th- things that I don't want to do, I find myself doing. And so he's really telling us that we have this sinful nature, this sinful depravity, this natural inclination within our heart that would pull us away from God. The Bible tells us that we are sinners by nature and choice. And uh, so that's one of our enemies. Our second enemy is really the values of this world, this, this world system of values that is the antithesis of all of God's values, and it tells us that in 1 John two, twelve through 15. But the one that I want us to focus on is that we not only have self 
and society, but we have another adversary. The Bible refers to him as Satan. And 1 Corinthians 11.3 makes it very clear what he tries to do with those that are believers. We know that according to 2 Corinthians 4.4 that he blinds the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel, the glory of Jesus Christ. But in 2 Corinthians 11.3, it tells us, uh, the Apostle Paul tells us that, and let me in fact read this verse, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, so he's working to deceive your thoughts, stop there just for a minute, thoughts, that your thoughts, thoughts, literally the Greek there means mental perception. And we know it's not the circumstances of our life that determines how we think, feel, and respond to life. I don't think, feel, and respond to life because of what has happened to me, but it's actually, it's my, my mental perception, it's my thoughts, it's my worldview that determines uh, my thoughts about my circumstances, that determines how I think, feel, and will respond to the circumstances of life. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by, by his cunning, that your thoughts, your mental perception, your worldview will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. The word sincere means no pretense, no hypocrisy, not self-seeking. So we have an adversary that's doing everything he can to get us to just kind of go through the motions in our spiritual life, to kind of do it robotically, to do the check the church box. We just kind of show up and we go to church, check. We read our Bible, check. We prayed today, check. Kind of going through the motions without much emotion. It's all form and no substance. And so he's working to deceive us, to keep us from this place of sincerity, that, we, that, we, uh, that we're not sincere before God. And, and also he says here, to keep us, to lead us astray from sincere. And then the word pure means uprightness of life, which I think is the result of, of being sincere with God. If you'll be real with God, he'll be real with you. And as he makes himself known to you, it changes the way you live. There will be uprightness of life. And so the enemy is doing everything he can to lead us astray from our sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And uh, this is what I found in my own life. Once you've experienced this sincere and pure devotion to Christ, nothing, nothing absolutely compares. I mean, I mean it's, it's, it's absolutely amazing. The Bible tells us, uh, Jeremiah twenty nine thirteen says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And uh, if you'll be real with God, God will be real with you. There's no doubt about it. And as you come to God, and when you come to church, when you read your Bible, when you pray, when you gather together with other Christians in a small group setting, that if you come with sincerity of heart, God will meet with you. And uh, it's just totally amazing. But we have these three enemies. We have our flesh that works against that. We have the values of this world that would, that, that they would actually laugh at the fact that we want to know this God of all creation. And then we have an adversary that seeks to deceive us and lead us astray from our sincere and pure devotion to Jesus Christ. So how does he do that? 
I'm sure that you've met people who have defected from the faith. I've seen many people defect from the faith. It's sad. It's unfortunate. But it, it's truly oftentimes a work of the enemy. The serpent deceives to get us to defect from the faith. And he does that in, in a couple different ways. One way is that he'll, he'll try to do it through our being disillusioned by the pressures of life. That life becomes so painful and so difficult that we become disillusioned. Or he tries to deceive us by the pleasures of life. The thinking that we can find greater pleasure in something in creation as opposed to the creator. And so, and the lie that he works on, the way that he deceives us, the lie is, is that he tries to get us to believe that God is not for us. In fact, he's against us. That somehow God is holding out on us. That he doesn't have our best interest at heart. If he can get us to begin to head in that direction, then we will be disillusioned by the pressures of life. We will be deceived by the, by the pleasures of life. And what happens is that um, we, we tend to give in to temptation then. We're overwhelmed by trials. We're devastated by life's trauma. Uh, when our values begin to shift, we tend to worship our work, work at our play, and play at our worship, making life all about us rather than God. And so, what is the method to this Spirit-filled life? Well, first of all, the the Spirit-filled life is having truth shine in your heart. The truths of God go from concept to reality. We tend to live in and out of this experience. The goal is to live in the reality of this as much as possible, making it a whole life experience. And then, number three, you can follow there on your notes, spiritual disciplines, which are also known as means of grace... Here's your fill in the blank. Increase our capacity. Increase our capacity for living in the reality of God's grace. So what are some spiritual disciplines that could come to mind for you right now as you think of spiritual disciplines? Bible study, prayer, church participation, small group, you know, fasting. There's, there's a lot of different, even ministry. I found ministry, just being involved in ministry as I, as I continue on in ministry and as I share my faith with others through evangelism or ministering to others at the hospital. I mean, there certainly have been times in my life when I didn't even want to go to the hospital or I didn't even want to get up and teach on a Sunday morning. And yet, as I begin to do that, God would meet with me and, and minister to me and empower me with his presence. And it's, it's totally amazing. So that through the spiritual disciplines, means of grace, spiritual disciplines or means of grace, another word for it, we can increase our capacity for living in the reality of God's grace. Second Peter 3.18 tells us to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So we need to really be purposeful in our growth and increasing our capacity to experience more of the presence of God in our lives. First Timothy 4, 7 through 8. The Apostle Paul is, is encouraging Timothy, the young pastor, he says, hey, you know what? It's good that you want to keep yourself physically fit. This is a paraphrased version of those verses. It's great that you want to keep yourself physically fit. But, but spiritual training, spiritual training is of great value, not only for this life, but, of, but also the life to come. In other words, he's saying, hey, you know what? You need to train yourself spiritually. And as I thought about this, this has to do with spiritual disciplines. You don't live in the fullness of the Spirit what I mean by that is to experience the fruit. And I'm sure that you want to experience more of the fruit of the Holy Spirit just as I do. 
you know, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We all want to experience that. But you don't do that, nor do you experience not just the fruit of the Spirit, but also the gifts of the Spirit, a manifestation of, of, of His gifts in our life, whether it be teaching or leading in some way or another, whatever that might be, prayer, ministry, uh, you don't you don't experience more of that by trying harder. That you're going to go out from this study and try really hard to experience more of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It actually comes by way of training. So let me say that again. You don't live in in the fullness of the Spirit through the fruit or the gifts of the Spirit by trying, but by training. Any more than you can be a world class athlete or a musician. I was thinking about Michael Jordan, which I believe was one of the greatest uh, basketball players of all times. And uh, if you know his story, he didn't just show up to the Chicago Bulls training camp one weekend or one day and decide to try out. No, he has a pretty solid regiment of training that led up to that. And even while he was playing for the Chicago Bulls, uh, he worked out hard. And I understand that he also had some DNA. He had the genetics. But he combined that with desire and then discipline, uh, these physical disciplines in, in the training to make him that world-class basketball player that he was. Now, he tried to play baseball and, and kind of did a big belly flop with that. But it was, a lot of it had to do with the fact that um, he just didn't have the training uh, that led up to a high level of performance. And so spiritual disciplines, means of grace, increase our capacity for living in the reality of God's grace. It's important that we make spiritual disciplines a priority if we want to experience a greater degree of having truth shine in our hearts. And let me share with you a story uh, that I think that helps to illustrate this. This is from a guy by the name of John Flavel. Uh, he was a, back in 1680. Puritan wrote uh, this treatise on the soul of man. That's what it was titled. And listen to what he says as he, as he records his experience. He says, I set out that day to examine the state of my soul and to think of the life to come. So he took a day of prayer and self-examination, which is really a good thing to do. I mean, when we do our daily devotions, when we read our Bible on a regular basis and pray, it's, it's an opportunity to connect with God and for self-examination. But he spends a whole day doing this. And this is what he says as I continue reading. After a while, I found my thoughts fixed and so much closer to these great and astonishing truths than I have ever usually experienced. I found my heart rising to these truths with a liveliness and a vigor. My thoughts began to swell and rise until they were an overwhelming flood. Such were the ravishing taste of heavenly joys and my assurance of partaking of them that I utterly lost sight of the world for several hours and I didn't know any more where I was than if I had been asleep on my bed. And then, then he goes on and says, I went to an inn where he says that he continued to commune with God no matter who he was talking to. He couldn't stop communing with God. And it doesn't mean that he 
uh, that he talked to him while he was interacting with people or that people thought he was crazy. He just experienced God's presence wherever he went. He continues on and says, I couldn't help meditating on his glory. I couldn't help praying. I couldn't help sensing his love overflowing me all night. I wasn't able to get to sleep. The next day I got back on my horse and within a few hours I was aware of the ebbing of the tide and by nightfall there was a sweet surrender upon my spirit yet the transports of joy were there ever after. So he has this powerful, really, encounter with the living God, and it makes a significant difference in his life. But it came as a result of him taking a day and just spending it with the Lord in prayer and examining Scripture and looking really at the, at the state of his soul, and God met him there. So what is the method of the Spirit-filled life? It involves having truth shine in our heart. We want that to be a whole life experience. We increase that through spiritual disciplines. And then number four, what do you actually do in the process of using the means of grace, these spiritual disciplines? So what do you do? What do you do as you're going about your day and God begins to speak to you or as you're studying God's Word or you're praying or you're in a time of worship, celebration, or whatever it might be? There are two things that you really need to learn to do. A couple, you might call them disciplines. But the first one's found in Ephesians 4, 29 through 32. And I'm going to read uh, the verses in the context because it's important for you to catch a little bit of the context here. But really, the, the verse that I'm wanting to focus on is that he says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit. But I want you to hear the verses that surround that. So the first thing is we're going to talk about is not to grieve the Holy Spirit. But let me begin reading Ephesians 4, 29 through 32. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And I'll stop there just for a minute before I read on. Let me give you a little bit of the context here. Paul has just spent a considerable amount of time kind of walking him through uh, the verses that precede these verses. He, he said, hey, uh, put off the old self He's talking about, as Christians, that we're going to live a different kind of life, and we have to consciously put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and then to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So he's saying put off the old, begin to think differently about your life, and then put on the new. And so in this verse that we just read, he was saying, hey, put off, in fact, uh, some translations, in fact, I think it's the NIV that says, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for the building up of others according to their needs, so that it might benefit those that hear. In other words, get rid of uh, this corrupting talk, but put on that, that kind of talk that builds others up. And then he goes right into this idea, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That's verse 30 from the fourth chapter of Ephesians. And then he goes on and he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And so that's what you are to put off. And then in verse 32 of this chapter 4 of Ephesians, he says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Why? As God in Christ forgave you. So he's saying, hey, 
get rid of this bitterness and wrath and, and relating to one another out of anger and clamor and slander. But because of the way that Christ has treated you, that's the way you should think about it. That's what should motivate you. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Because this is how Christ has, has treated you. And so uh, he's really saying, so in understanding this idea of, of grieving the Holy Spirit, is that, that every day we have this opportunity that we can take a path uh, living out according to how we used to live, or we can take a different path. Um, we can put off the old and we can begin to put on the new. But, but when we don't put on the new, in essence, we are grieving the Holy Spirit is what he says. So just hang on to that thought for a minute. And I want us to now to look at 1 Thessalonians 5.19. And then we'll put all this together. 5.19, 1 Thessalonians 5.19 all the way to... Uh, actually, verses 16 uh, to 20. Uh, I, I want you to read the whole context here and understand the whole context. He says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing... Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And then he says, do not quench the Spirit. So you see the verses that led up to that. It's almost like he's saying, hey, just keep feeding your appetite for God. Walk with this unbelievable delight in God. Keep your heart filled up with the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. And don't do anything to quench the work of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the word idea behind quench is to put out, to pour cold water, to put out the fire of God in our hearts. And then he goes on, verse 20, as we continue reading after he says, do not quench the Holy Spirit. He says, do not despise prophecies. Prophecies, according to Revelations 19.10, are um, really testimonies about Jesus. So when people are giving testimony about Jesus, wanting to stir up greater appetite within us for God, don't pour cold water on it. Don't, don't quench that. And so let's put those two together. What do, what do I do when I'm uh, doing my personal devotions? There are times when I'm reading and then all of a sudden I'll read a text like this one where it says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for the building up of others according to their needs. And I'll immediately the Holy Spirit will convict me and say, and remind me of how I, I had said something maybe to my wife or to a co-worker or to someone in my life that was, was not, not uh, it was unwholesome. It was unhealthy. It, it wasn't edifying to them. And the Holy Spirit will convict me and show me how I've grieved the heart of God. And it's because I've, I'm living below a level, below my potential and privilege that he, he provides for me to live. And so I'll bring that to him and, and recognize that, hey, I'm, I'm grieving the Holy Spirit, and I'm also, there's something in my life that I'm quenching the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. And maybe I lashed out at somebody because they lashed out at me. And, and so what, I, what I'm having to do is to think about uh, that truly at that moment when I lashed out, I was more concerned about what they said about me and my response to them than I was in honoring God. So there's a, obviously a form of idolatry working in my heart I'm more concerned about what they said about me or my response to them than my honor of God and the realization that what he has said about me should trump what anybody ever thinks or says about me. And uh, so it's so in that process, when we take a, a path that's contrary to the commandments of God's word, we are grieving the Holy Spirit. We're also quenching the work of the Holy Spirit within our lives. Let me put those two together. Uh, it's kind of on your notes, but, but, but let me give you this illustration first of all. When I met my wife, she fell head over heels in love with me. 
I mean, do you blame her? Okay, I, that's, that's a bit of a joke. Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, actually, it wasn't right away. In fact, if anyone fed, uh, fell head over heels in love with anyone, it was more me with her. She played a little harder to get. And, and it, it, it didn't happen all of a sudden. It wasn't love at first sight. I don't really believe in love at first sight because love really has to do with knowledge. And I really didn't know her. But as I got to know her and as she got to know me, um, we begin to realize, hey, I, th- I think we want to make a commitment to one another. And in essence, we, we became what you might call filled with each other. And I need to remind you that, uh, that the Spirit is a person. And you are filled, when you're filled with the Spirit, you're filled with the person. So how are you filled with the person? It means to come under their, in, their personal influence. It means that you become so aware of their desires and needs and their wishes and wants and their passions and their proclivities. And you are extremely motivated to be responsive to them. So, so as Nancy and I grew in our love for one another, we became more filled up with each other to the point that we didn't want to grieve one another, so we, we would seek to please one another, and we didn't want to quench the, the passion we had for one another, and so we would not only seek to please, but we would seek to listen to one another. Now, some people call this a crush, but it's much more than that. A crush is an immature, idolatrous form of this, and it's very self-centered. I'm not talking about a crush this is more abiding because it is other-centered. And so when you, when you are in love with someone, you are filled with that person. So a, a good marriage will, will have these characteristics. You will, um, you will seek to please the other person, and you will seek to listen to them. In fact, take a look at the notes here. Let me walk you through the next couple points is uh, the, the fill in the blank is don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And obviously it's based on the text that we read there in Ephesians chapter 4 and the verses, verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And it means to seek to please. And so when I am convicted that I have taken a path that's contrary to what God would have me take in my life, I've responded to, to a circumstance, a situation, a person inappropriately, that will bring conviction that I have grieved the heart of, of God. And what I'll want to do is repent. Repentance is a good thing. It's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. And what I have to do is I have to identify the idols of my heart and really begin to see that all sin... All sin is a trampling on the love and the wisdom of God. You see, the commandments of God are not some arbitrary list of rules, but the commandments of God, God has established these commandments because He created us in knowing our weaknesses and strengths, knowing what is best for us. These are in our best interests when we live according to His, His commandments. Not only that, the commandments are the, the very character of God and, and who He is. And so when I live a life that's contrary to that, when I don't put off the old and put on the new, I, I break His heart. I grieve Him because I'm living below my potential and my privilege uh, as someone who, who is a follower of Him. And so it breaks His heart. 
And so as I, as I work through the issues of my life, I work that deep into my heart and remind myself that, in essence, any sin is a trampling on the love and wisdom of God. Here's the next point, though. Not don't grieve the Holy Spirit, but don't also quench the Holy Spirit. That's the next fill-in-the-blank on the notes. And that means to seek to listen and to believe as the first one, don't grieve. So when I find myself grieving the Holy Spirit, I'm going to repent. And so the next step is that I need to believe. So I repent and believe. By the way, not only uh, is salvation when we come to faith in Jesus Christ for the first time, but all of sanctification is the result of us on a regular basis, daily basis, repenting and believing identifying the idols of our heart, seeing all sin as a trampling on the love and wisdom of God, and then believing, finding our identity in Christ, and seeing all salvation as a filling of your heart with the great things of who Jesus is and what he has done for you so that your appetite for Christ exceeds your appetite for sin. And uh, and so... What do I do in the midst of my daily devotions or going about my task each and every day? I, I really have to examine my heart and look to see, is there an area of my life that I'm grieving the Holy Spirit or I'm quenching the work of the Holy Spirit? Here's another illustration that might help you to uh, understand this a little bit more clearly. And uh, every one of my kids, you now my wife and I, we had three kids. They're all grown and gone, and now we even have four grandkids but, but every one of my kids in one way or another uh, disobeyed my commands. And, I'm, and if you're a parent, uh, that, that happens. But they didn't just disobey it and disobey my commands, but they resented it. And, and they even accused me of trying to mess up their lives, which, which is so crazy. Here I'm wanting to, I, I would be willing to give my life for my kids, and yet my kids not only disobey my commands, but they think that I'm trying to mess with them. And uh, the, the times when that happened, what do you think was the very first thing that, that came to mind as they began to do that? First thing that came to mind is they are just like their mother. No, I didn't say that. I, actually, that's not what first came to mind. That's just, just a joke. But, but what came to mind is that they, they grieved my heart because here I'm looking out for their best interest and, uh, and, and they want to defy it. And not only that, accuse me of wanting to mess with their life and to make life miserable for them. And, uh, and, it, and it greatly grieved me. And, and also, when I would try to convince them that I loved them and wanted the, the best for them, and they would seek to quench my love for them, by their casual, cavalier, even disrespectful attitude toward me. I was uh, somewhat, I, th- I thought it was a bit humorous. My son, uh, Ryan, has a little four-year-old. His four-year-old is Brayden, and he was running through the house not too long ago, our house, kind of making quite a ruckus, kind of pushing down his brother, misbehaving. And so Ryan, my son, grabbed his uh, son, Brayden, and tried to get his attention and said, hey, look at me, son, look at me. And he grabbed him by the face to try to have him look at him very tenderly. But as he was trying to hold his face and look into his eyes, his eyes were going every which way but looking towards dad. I couldn't help but crack up laughing. I thought that was really humorous because how often uh, 
we are like that with God. God's trying to get our attention. We've grieved his heart. And even when he comes to speak truth to us, we kind of put out the fire. We, we quench uh, him speaking to us. And uh, how important it is for us to learn that, that his commandments are, are, are for our good. He loves us. He's crazy in love, love with us and has established these commandments for us. And so we need to seek to please him. And we need to seek to listen to him. Now, let, let me apply some of these to our lives. Uh, a week ago, the previous weekend, we talked about, and I used some of these as an illustration, and I, I said that the Spirit-filled life is hard experience based on objective truth. And I'm sure that you would agree with me that, um, that the objective truth, that there is an objective truth in God's Word that God loves us. Uh, he is madly in love with us, and that's an objective truth but you can have that objective truth become hard experience. And how do you know uh, that has become truly hard experience? How do you really know that that has become uh, hard experience? Uh, you know that His love has become hard experience when His love for you is so real uh, that you can even love enemies. You can love people that otherwise you wouldn't be able to love in the past. You can love your enemies. You can love those that uh, persecute you. You can love those who despitefully use you. You know that his love is real. When his love is so real that it kind of trumps the, the rejection of the world or even the love of those that are, that are closest to you. And there are times that I don't have that kind of love deep in my heart, and so I have to begin to work it deep into my heart through recognition that I'm grieving the Holy Spirit when I find myself unable to, to love even my enemies, and, uh, and I'm quenching the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. And so I've got to seek to please, and I seek to listen to the work of the Holy Spirit so He can, he can root up and change my heart down deep at that motivational that motivational level. Um, let me give you another illustration here. Forgiveness. When do you know? And that's an objective truth. God forgives us. We've, we know that. But, but when do you know that that's not just objective truth, but it's a hard experience? You know that His forgiveness is a hard experience when His forgiveness is so real that I no longer live in the guilt and shame of my past sins. In fact, I'm able to share those with others as a trophy of His grace. And as I'm reminded of those things, it doesn't bring regret or resentment, but it brings a sense of uh, unspeakable joy as I see uh, His redeeming love. But not only that, I'm really living in the reality of His forgiveness is that I can forgive the worst sins committed against me. Um, because he has so filled me with his forgiveness, he has forgiven me that I'm able to forgive the worst sins against me. And when I find myself being unforgiving or even bitterness in my heart, once again, I have to see that I'm grieving the Holy Spirit. I'm living below my potential and my privilege that he offers me. So I, I get back to seeking to please him, and I also recognize that I'm quenching the work of the Holy Spirit. There's something, in some way, I'm, I'm denying his love. And so I seek to listen and to allow his ap my appetite for him to exceed uh, whatever it is that I'm pursuing at that time that that's, seems to be in my own uh, deceived eyes greater than him. 
Uh, how about this? Uh, I use this illustration. When do I know that his sovereignty is not just an objective truth, but it's a hard experience? I know that his uh, sovereignty is, that is, his loving, wise control is, when, I, when it becomes a hard experience, is when it is so real that I can not only accept, but thank him for whatever comes into my life as part of his plan. And when, I, when I'm not living in the reality of that, I, I work that deep into my heart through uh, not grieving the Holy Spirit, seeking to please, repenting. And then uh, I stop from quenching the work of the Holy Spirit, so I seek to listen and I begin to believe in Jesus and allow Him to begin to transform my heart at that deep level. Um, even if it's worry, I was thinking about this last week. Nancy was sharing with me that uh, she was struggling with something she was really worrying about. And so I began to ask her, so, so what do you do to work the reality of your trust in God much deeper? And she said she does the, basically the same thing, is that she begins to remind herself. And by the way, with each of these, I also use quite a bit of verses, uh, Scripture verse that, that helps me to, and I, I'll take those verses and meditate and reflect and memorize and, so that those will just be driven deep, deep within my heart so that the reality of who Christ is, that God is for me and not against me so that I can begin to see uh, His amazing love more clearly and that His amazing love exceeds the trials and the temptations and the trauma that I'm facing in my life. And, uh, and really, how do I know this is for fact, even as it relates to these illustrations that I gave you? We look at the cross. How do I know that He loves me? The cross. I mean, once and for all, He declared that. He died on the cross for us. How do I know that He forgives me? The cross. He died on the cross to forgive me of all of my sins. How do I know that He's sovereign? The cross. How do I know that he could take a, a really a bad situation and work it for my good? Well, the cross. He can take a, a, a death burial and turn it into a resurrection. And so we see that over and over again through the cross. Let me wrap this uh, sermon up here for you. And so as we've looked at this, what is the method of the Spirit-filled life? It is having truth shine in our heart. It's a whole life experience. That's what we want. What we, that's what we seek. We can increase our capacity through spiritual disciplines. We need to begin to work this process of using this means of grace in two ways, by not grieving the Holy Spirit and not quenching the Holy Spirit. So seek to please, seek to listen, repent, and believe. But number five, a Spirit-filled life looks to Christ to meet needs in the very areas of life they are vulnerable to sin. Sin is what we do when we're not satisfied with God. Anytime we take a path that's outside of God's commandments or away from God, it's because we're not really finding our deepest satisfaction in Him. And so a Spirit-filled life looks to Christ to meet needs in the very areas of life that we are vulnerable to sin. What needs or need are you seeking to meet through your sin that Christ can meet in its replacement? A couple verses here that are cross-references on your notes. Jeremiah 2.13 Jeremiah writes, uh, and he's, he's really quoting God. He says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. I love that term referring to God, living waters. He's the fountain of living waters and have dug their own wells, broken wells that cannot hold water. John four thirteen through 14, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. 
And he says, whoever drinks of this water will be thirsty again. And he's using it metaphorically. He's talking about the well, but he's also talking about anything in life. Anything in life, you're going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him never will be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. If we come to Jesus, the living waters, he will satisfy our soul through and through. And then from our lives, from our spirit, our soul, all of our lives, his his presence will well up like into eternal life. In him, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Let me end with this quote uh, by John Owen. He's a Puritan, uh, always been intrigued, a dead theologian, and I've got a number of his books and have read a lot of his writings and have been greatly impacted by him. But the thing that has always stood out to me more than anything is that here's a man who experienced incredible hardship in his life. And in fact, you may be shocked by this, but he buried his 11 children. He had 11 children, had to bury every one of them, died all but one died in childhood. And so how incredibly devastating. How would a guy like that, how, would, how did he get through that, that level of trauma? Let me end with this quote from him. This is what he says. On Christ's glory... I will fix all of my thoughts and desires. And the more I see of the glory of Christ, the more the painted beauties of this world will wither in of will wither in my eyes and I will be more and more crucified to this world. Let me read that one more time. On Christ's glory, I will fix all of my thoughts and desires. And the more I see of the glory of Christ, the more the painted beauties of this world will wither in my eyes, and I will be more and more crucified to this world. And then he goes on, he says, It will become to me like something dead and putrid, impossible for me to enjoy. Wow. Unbelievable. In other words, he saw the beauty, the glory of Jesus, and it captivated him to such a degree. He saw the bigness of God. God became more real to him than all of the trauma, trials, and temptations of life. And so that's my prayer for you, that as we've walked through this study and we looked at, the, at this method of the Spirit-filled life, that may Christ... His death, burial, and resurrection, the fullness of life that he offers us, may that become more real to you than all of the problems, the issues, the trials, the temptations, and all the trauma that life may throw at us. May you begin to see his beauty and his glory and his splendor, and may you know that he is for you, not against you, that he is crazy in love with you. He thinks the world of you. And may that love so captivate your heart. May it chase away all of your fears. And I pray this for you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening.